Hello, you're listening to The Science of Everything podcast, episode 27, Intermolecular Bonds and Phase Transitions. I'm your host, James Fodor. So this episode builds on from what we talked about in episode 15 on chemical bonding. Uh, In that episode, among other things, I talked about intramolecular bonding, that is the chemical bonds that combine atoms together to form molecules. In this episode, I'll be looking at intermolecular bonds, which are the chemical bonds uh, of of a somewhat different sort that bind molecules together or small molecules to form bigger molecules or that bind molecules together to form larger substances like a liquid or a solid, for example. So some of those include dispersion forces, dipole-dipole bonding, and hydrogen bonding. And I'll also apply uh, this knowledge of intermolecular forces uh, to explaining how surface tension works. If you've ever heard of that phenomenon, it's a very interesting one, so we'll take a look at that. This knowledge of intermolecular bonding will then also be applied to understand phase transitions, that is, the process by which a substance goes from being a liquid to a gas, or a gas to a liquid, or a solid to a liquid, and so on. So I'll I'll focus on evaporation, condensation, boiling, and melting, and explain uh, the process by which those occur with reference to knowledge of intermolecular bonding. Okay, so let's get into it, and I'll start with intermolecular bonding. So, first of all, we have to know what intermolecular forces are, that is, the forces that act between molecules. Intermolecular forces are forces of attraction or repulsion which act between neighboring particles. They could be ions, ions, atoms, or molecules, but generally we're talking about molecules in this section. Now, intermolecular forces are relatively weak compared to intramolecular forces, that is, the forces acting within a molecule to keep it together. That's why substances don't sort of fall apart and the, you know, the hydrogen atom in one water molecule gets uh, detached and attracted to another water molecule. Actually, that's a bad example because that does happen, but you know, that's why substances stay together and don't just, uh, unless it's an actual chemical reaction. It's because generally the forces keeping a molecule together are much stronger than the forces that keep the different molecules within that substance together. Like the intramolecular forces, intermolecular forces are really all based upon uh, electromagnetism, that is, positive and negative charges. I haven't done an episode specifically covering that topic yet, but I will do so in the future. Um, But just for the moment, remember that like charges repel and um, unlike charges attract. So that's the basic basic idea we're applying here. Another concept that we now need to introduce is the state or phase of matter. We, we have talked about this before. Um, just to go through them again, we have solid, liquid, and gas are the three main stages, uh, phases. There are some other ones too, but they're the three main ones we'll be talking about. Now, the, the state or phase of matter that a given substance is in is sort of can be considered to be a competition, if you like, between the thermal motion of the the particles within the substance, which which tends to, well, move them around, vibrate them around, and also, and therefore sort of push them apart from each other. That's one aspect. And the second sort of side to this contest are the strength of the intermolecular bonds that act between the particles to pull them together. So if you like, the the thermal energy, that's also the energy that gives uh, an object its temperature, as we talked about in a previous episode, is sort of pushing particles apart, but the intermolecular forces are pulling them together. The more, sort of, the relatively stronger the intermolecular forces are, or the less dispersed the particles will be, and therefore it'll be more likely that the substance will be either liquid or, if it's even stronger, a solid. Conversely, the stronger the thermal energy forces are, or the the greater the thermal energy is, the greater the temperature of the substance is, the more rapidly the particles will be moving around, the more they'll be overcoming the intermolecular bonding forces, and therefore the the more you'll tend to, the substance will tend to move from being 
a solid to a liquid to a gas. So, so gas is the most disordered state where sort of thermal energy has won. Solid is the most ordered state where intermolecular bonding forces have won and liquid's sort of in between. So that, those are the basic concepts you have to keep in mind when, when we're dealing with intermolecular forces. There's the sort of dispersing force of thermal energy and the combining or bringing together force of the intermolecular bonds. But I still haven't explained how this drawing together force of the intermolecular bonds works. So that's what I'm going to do now. There are basically, at least for our purposes, three different types of intermolecular bonds, intermolecular bonding forces. As I said, they all rely fundamentally on electromagnetic uh, attraction, repulsion, the electromagnetic force, but they act in slightly different ways. So to start off with, I'll talk about dispersion forces, which are the weakest of the three types. Dispersion forces are also called London forces, but uh, that's somewhat weird, so I prefer dispersion forces. Essentially, these arise because of the chance accumulations of electrons in a particular region of the electron cloud, which then induces a temporary dipole in that molecule, which in turn induces a temporary dipole in the neighbouring molecule. So let's explain what that means. Uh, if you remember the um, episode when we talked about polarity in molecules and electronegativity, I had talked about how in some molecules one atom attracts has a stronger pulling power for electrons, a stronger a higher le- electronegativity than does the other atom, and therefore it tends to, uh, in a sense, hog the electrons, or the electrons spend relatively more time uh, near the high electronegativity atom than they do close to the low electronegativity atom, and therefore uh, within the molecule you have a dipole established, but that is a partial charge, where it's not like an ionic bond where the, uh, an electron is completely transferred from one atom to the other, but an electron has sort of been partially transferred because it's moved from... it, it, it spends relatively more time with uh, orbiting around one atom than the other. And so there's a partial charge on two parts of the molecule. That's what a dipole is. Well, you can get dipoles, or they can form as a result of a difference in electronegativities within the molecule, like for example in water, the uh, oxygen atom has a higher electronegativity than the hydrogens, but you can also form a a dipole, or at least a temporary dipole, as a result of random chance, or so-called dispersion forces. Basically, uh, if you recall our episode on quantum mechanics, principles of quantum mechanics, the electrons don't literally orbit around the nucleus of the atom, they sort of exist in a probability cloud, and they have a certain probability of existing in any given place at any given time um, within uh, around the atom. By the way, when we form molecules, we can also talk about the... Um, it gets kind of complicated, but we can talk about the atoms now being in sort of shells or orbitals around the entire molecule, as opposed to just specific atoms in the molecule. Um, that's a field called quantum chemistry that deals with that, and as you can imagine, that gets a bit complicated. But So, so basically, imagine that the now the molecule as a whole, like a water molecule or something like that, ha- has electron shells as opposed to just the, uh, the single atom. W- it would be easier to uh, imagine what I'm saying if you picture it that way. Um, so just by chance, uh, sometimes more of the electrons will be, say, on the left-hand side of this molecule than on the right-hand side. And so just by chance at that instant, uh, or, for, or for that short period of time, you will have a fractional charge, say, a negative charge on the left side of the molecule and a fractional positive charge on the right side because you don't have very many electrons there. And so that is called a temporary dipole. Dipole dipole because, once again, there's, there's two charges, one on each side of the molecule, but it's temporary because it's just sort of come out by random chance, and, you know, in the next nanosecond it'll be... Uh, it'll be gone or changed around. However, the dipole doesn't need to last for very long or be very strong to have an effect. Um, and if you get a, a, this temporary dipole being uh, coming to existence in one molecule, what it will do is induce a dipole in a neighbouring molecule. So suppose, for example, we have uh, that, that negative uh, left-hand side of the water molecule, we'll say, which has relatively more electrons in it. That 
negative dipole will tend to repel the electrons in the in the neighboring water molecule, uh, thereby inducing a small positive dipole in its neighboring water molecule, and the, correspondingly a, another negative dipole on the opposite side of that neighboring water molecule. And so the initial purely random dipole that's been generated in the first water molecule has now induced a dipole to exist um, in the neighboring molecule, the neighboring water molecule. And the positive dipole in the neighboring water molecule will then attract the negative dipole in the original water molecule, forming a relatively weak but still important bonding force. And that force there is called the dispersion force. It's that force that exists as a result of, first of all, the chance accumulation of electrons in, the, uh, in a particular region of the electron cloud in one molecule. And then second, that chance-induced dipole, then inducing another dipole in a neighboring molecule, then you've got a positive and a negative dipole which attract each other thereby causing, uh, generating a, a relatively small but still noticeable attractive force between those two molecules. And of course any individual uh, dipole, uh, induced dipole uh, interaction like this, any individual dispersion force will, will bond will not last very long because it's only due to random chance, but the point is they're constantly forming and breaking so the, 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 part, the particles or molecules are constantly attracting each other to varying degrees, and that keeps the substance together to some degree. The dispersion forces are the only intermolecular forces that are present between nonpolar molecules, at least to a first approximation that we'll be talking about now. So they're particularly important for understanding things like uh, hydrocarbons, for example, if they're nonpolar hydrocarbons, like uh, uh, petrochemicals, for example. A lot of those are nonpolar, so you need to know about dispersion forces to understand how they work. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. The dispersion forces become stronger or larger um, as the size of the molecule in question increases. The reason for that is essentially because as the surface area of the molecule increases, there's greater chance for disparities in the number of electrons uh, to, to occur, and so greater chance that a dipole, that a temporary dipole will form. Also, there's greater ability for the, uh, the temporary dipole to be larger because there's more electrons and more area for them to move about. So as the, as the particles in question get bigger, the dispersion forces increase. Now this principle of the relative size of the molecules determining the relative strength of the dispersion forces between them uh, can be applied to understand why the byproducts of crude oil uh, are in the given phases of matter that they are. So um, the different byproducts of crude oil, like um, you know, refined oil, tar, wax, natural gas, these sorts of things, they're all essentially derivatives of, of the same thing, of the same base product, crude oil, and they're all basically just hydrocarbons, carbon molecules um, surrounded by hydrogen, um, sorry, excuse me, carbon atoms surrounded by hydrogen atoms, um, but where the number of carbon atoms varies. So the simplest uh, version of this, uh, as, we, as we call them hydrocarbons, the simplest form is just one carbon atom surrounded by four hydrogen atoms, that's called methane. That is a gas, because the part, each methane molecule is very small, obviously, only five atoms, and therefore the dispersion forces are relatively small. So therefore, the attractive forces, the intermolecular bonding forces between those um, between those methane molecules is relatively small um, compared to the strength of the thermal motion. Therefore, um, the thermal motion wins, and the at, at room temperature, at least, methane is a gas. If you move up a bit to something like but butane or hexane, which has, I think, four and six carbon atoms um, bonded to each other in a chain and then all surrounded by hydrogens, these are larger and so have more chance uh, for temporary dipoles to form and therefore have larger dispersion forces between them these are therefore liquids at room temperature, and these are the things that you, you put into your car, the type of hydrocarbons that fuel, uh, are used for um, liquid petrol, liquid oil. Finally, as you increase the size of the chain even further and get up to some of the really long 
hydrocarbon molecules, the dispersion forces continue to increase, and so that they actually overpower the thermal uh, the thermal motion force forces uh, to such a degree that the, these substances become solids. Um, and and the, of course, the longer the chains they are, the more viscous or the the sort of the more solidic the solid will be. So things like wax uh, and tar, for example, or um, yeah, tar that's used for uh, asphalt, that is essentially just really long hydrocarbon chains. Okay, so that's an application of dispersion forces. Uh, it's also important to point out that dispersion forces are really the only, f- or at least the only main intermolecular bonding force that is applicable to all types of molecules and particles. So the, the dispersion forces are always there, and then sometimes there's additional forces that that are added on uh, in, in particular circumstances, and, and I'll, I'll talk about what those are now. So we've done dispersion forces, now we're moving on to dipole-dipole bonding. So this is really, the, I mean, the basic idea is ex- exactly the same as dispersion forces. It's you've got a dipole in one molecule and a dipole in a neighboring molecule, and the, the positive dipole in one molecule uh, attracts the negative dipole in the other molecule, and they form uh, a bond in that way. Uh, the, the only real difference is that in dipole-dipole bonding, the dipoles are permanent. So they'll be uh, generated by something like a, a non-polar, excuse me, a polar molecule, like water, for example. The um, positive end of a water molecule, one of the positive ends of a water molecule, joins up with the negative end of a neighboring water molecule, and they form a dipole-dipole bond. Actually, that wouldn't be a dipole. Well, that, never mind. So the, the basic idea is the same, except that is the same as with dispersion forces, except, as I just said, dipole-dipole bonds are going to be permanent, or at least more permanent than um, dispersion forces, because the dipole itself is permanent. The dipole is a result of the the internal structure of the molecule, and that doesn't change. The particular dipole-dipole bond that it has formed, you know, whether it's with molecule A, B, or C, uh, may change over time. But because the dipoles themselves are permanent, the bonds are going to be stronger and more permanent than they are in the case of dispersion forces. So dipole-dipole bonds do tend to be stronger than dispersion force bonds. Uh, However, they're also rarer because they only appear in asymmetrically arranged polar molecules. So that is where one atom in the molecule is attracting, uh, has a higher electronegativity than another atom, and also when those atoms are arranged in an asymmetric relationship. So, for example, I said that methane is a nonpolar molecule. Actually, I might have said that, but it is. Even though carbon and hydrogen have different electronegativities, the reason uh, methane is not nonpolar, excuse me, is not polar, even though, as I said, the atoms within it have different electronegativities, still non-polar because it's symmetrically arranged. There's one carbon in the middle surrounded by four hydrogens. That's a symmetrical arrangement, and so sort of all of the hydrogens cancel each other out or balance each other out might be one way of thinking about it. So there's no there's no polar ends to it. There's no positive or negative ends to it. However, something like water, where you have two uh, only two hydrogens bonded to an oxygen and therefore two non-bonding pairs of electrons remaining, that is not uh, balanced out, and so that is a polar molecule. It's also possible, by the way, to have a sort of a, a compromise or a, a hybrid between the dispersion forces and the dipole-dipole bonding, where you get one molecule that has a di- permanent dipole inducing a temporary dipole in a neighboring polar molecule. Um, so that, that, that's even more similar to dispersion forces uh, in that the second dipole, in, in the, say the second molecule, is induced, didn't previously exist. However, it was induced by a the dipole in another molecule, which was a permanent dipole, not just a temporary one that had been caused by random chance, as in the case of dispersion forces. Okay, so that's dipole-dipole bonding. Now I'm going to move on to the last category, which is hydrogen bonding. Now, hydrogen bonding is really just a special case of dipole-dipole bonding. It's not actually something different. It's just a subcategory, if you like. So it's really just dipole bonding, not dipole-dipole bonding, plus, or dipole-dipole bonding that occurs between uh, a hydrogen atom and a very highly electro- 
negative atom, for example, nitrogen, oxygen, or fluorine. And we give this a special name because, well, first of all, it's common in things like um, organic molecules that we're interested in, and also especially bioorganic molecules. But second of all, because it's really, really strong. Hydrogen bonds can even be stronger than intramolecular bonds, depending on the situation. Uh, so when molecules are bonded together by hydrogen bonding, that's often of particular importance. And if you remember in the... And I'll be talking more about hydrogen bonds in the episode that will be coming out soon on the structure and function of DNA, because hydrogen bonds are very important in joining together the two strands of DNA uh, there's two strands of nucleotides in a DNA molecule um, and therefore are important to the stability of our genetic material. So the reason hydrogen bonds are so strong, just to reiterate this point, is because that in such bonds hydrogen is directly uh, bonded to or attracted to one of, the, one of the most highly electronegative elements, like for example nitrogen or oxygen. And therefore the fractional positive charge or the dipole that occurs as a result of that situation is going to be very large. Not just sort of a normal dipole that you occur when the electronegativity difference is rather small, but in the case of hydrogen and oxygen or hydrogen and nitrogen, the dipole is very large because the electronegativity difference is very large and therefore the fractional positive, uh, the, the fractional charge difference is going to be large. Therefore the dipole-dipole bonding forces is also going to be large because the, the greater the charge difference, basically the greater the attractive force will be between the two molecules. The uh, effect of this hydrogen bonds is also magnified because of the relatively low mass, or actually the very low mass of hydrogen atoms compared to other atoms. Therefore, the sort of uh, the bang for your buck, the, the bonding force that you get for a given weight, uh, molecular weight or atomic weight, is, is particularly high because of that low weight of hydrogen. Now, I mentioned before that water has dipole-dipole uh, bonding, which is correct, but it would be more correct to say that they have they, uh, water molecules experience hydrogen bonding uh, because you've got a hydrogen atom in the water molecule which then forms a bond with the non-bonding electron pairs in neighboring, uh, in neighboring water molecules. And li uh, liquid water's very high boiling point, or relatively high boiling point, is largely due to the high number of hydrogen bonds that can be formed. So water is a relatively small molecule, it's just H2O, and yet it can form, each water molecule can form essentially four hydrogen bonds with its neighbors with its two non-bonding pairs and then two hydrogens bonded to it, bonded to the oxygen. Um, and since water is a small molecule but it can form four very strong bonds, that is a very high bonding strength to weight ratio or to mass ratio. Um, and therefore the intermolecular forces between water molecules are very high, so it takes a lot of thermal energy to overcome that. Therefore the need to heat water to relatively high temperature, 100 degrees Celsius at uh, normal atmospheric conditions, to boil it. And that doesn't perhaps sound very unusual because we're used to that, but if you think about it, water is one of the only sort of basic substances or pure substances that we know of that is liquid at room temperature. There are some other examples like mercury, for example, and alcohol, but most of the other liquids that you actually know are, are just uh, water aqueous solutions, that is, other things dissolved in water. So water is quite unusual in being liquid at such a, uh, what would normally be considered to be a high temperature. Okay, so now I'm going to take these uh, principles of intermolecular bonding and apply them to the case of to understand surface tension and how that works. Now, surface tension is uh, is a property. Surface tension is a property of the surface of a liquid that allows that surface to resist an external penetrative force. You, surface tension is important because it's responsible for such phenomenon as the ability of very small dense objects, like for example a uh, a pin or a very small nails, uh, to to float on the surface of water, even though the objects themselves are denser than water, so they, by rights they should sink. Um, and also the ability of certain insects, for example water striders, to run over the surface of water, which you may have heard of or seen before, that certain insects are actually able to walk on water in a sense. And it's not because they're floating. 
Floating is a... So this is an important concept. Surface tension is completely different to floating. Flotation I haven't covered yet, but it will do soon in an episode. Flotation only occurs when the object as a whole is less dense than the liquid in which it is floating. Surface tension is something different entirely, so that these small objects or these water striders are able to uh, stay above the surface of the water even though they are actually denser than the water and so are not floating on it. So how does surface tension work? It looks kind of weird when you see it, and it sounds kind of counterintuitive. Um, so I want to use these concepts of intermolecular forces to explain how it works. So remember, each of the water molecules... By the way, surface tension applies to all liquids, um, but I'm going to talk about it in regards to water because that's by far the most common manifestation of it that, uh, that, that you'll see. So, surface, so remember, each um, water molecule in the liquid water is attracted to the neighbouring water molecules because of hydrogen bonds, and hydrogen bonds, remember, are particularly strong. And especially because these hydrogen bonds between the water molecules are particularly strong, water molecules are highly uh, cohesive, which means they preferentially bond together with each other as opposed to bonding with other things, or at least preferentially bond with each other compared to uh, bonding with many other materials. So you can think of it as if the water molecules are trying to pull together, are trying to um, get as close to each other as they can because of these intermolecular forces, especially the hydrogen-hydrogen bonds. And so... What will happen is that that force will tend to lead to the surface area of the liquid being minimized. Now, if it weren't for the force of gravity and other things, that would cause the surface, the, the body of water to become a, perfectly, a perfect sphere, which is what will happen to water drop, drop, droplets in a vacuum, and is also why um, dripping taps and so on look sort of roughly, uh, the droplets look roughly spherical when they fall. It's because that minimizes the surface area, which in turn sort of minimizes the overall energy state of the water droplet, owing to the fact that it's being all of the water molecules being pulled together by these intermolecular forces. So, given the fact that the uh, water molecule, the water, the mass of water in a sense wants to minimize its, uh, or tends to minimize its surface area, what will happen if you push down on, or push inward in one section of the, into one section of the, the droplet of water or the, the section of water? What will happen is that the water will tend to resist being, uh, being pushed in that way resist being penetrated, and so there's an upward force that acts upon whatever's pushing into it uh, to push the, that material outwards, because the water molecules are trying to push together to try and uh, come together as close as possible to minimize surface area, but this sort of penetrating object is, is uh, sort of thing to circumvent that, so there, there's a certain force that acts to push this penetrating object out, um, and that force is what generates the surface tension, uh, because as long as the uh, the penetrating force is not too large, uh, so, so that is, as long as the force pushing down into the water is not too large, the force pushing outwards, the force of the surface tension, will be greater than the inward pushing force, and therefore the object will not penetrate the surface of the water. So this is how a water strider, for example, can walk on the surface of water, because the, the downward uh, force um, on each of the, the water strider's feet, owing to the force of gravity acting on the water strider, is relatively low, because the water strider is not very heavy, and so it's low enough to be less than the upward force acting on the water strider's legs itself from the water um, owing to the uh, the surface tension of the water from essentially the water molecules pushing the water strider's legs out of the water in order to minimize the surface area and therefore keep the energy state of the water as low as possible. So this is all a consequence of the intermolecular forces that exist between the water molecules. If you didn't have those forces, there would be no surface tension because there would be nothing to act to, to pull the water molecules together and therefore to push sort of foreign substances out. Also, um, this wouldn't occur, or at least 
it wouldn't be relevant if the water molecules preferentially bonded to, say, the water shrier's legs over other water molecules. So it's, it particularly occurs in water because the hydrogen intermolecular bonds uh, between the water molecules are, are quite strong compared to other potential bonds that the, that the water molecules may form. All right, so that's it for intermolecular bonding. Now I'm going to move on and talk about phase transitions. And this might seem sort of a disconnected topic, um, but actually they're quite relevant because, as I said before, the, um, the temperature at which a phase transition occurs really depends upon the strength of the intermolecular forces within that substance. So uh, intermolecular forces are really crucial to understanding how and why phase transitions occur. So first of all, I'm going to focus on evaporation and condensation. Evaporation is the process of the vaporization of a liquid that occurs on the surface of the liquid, that is going from a liquid to a gas, and condensation is the opposite of that. Now, it's important to distinguish between evaporation and boiling. Boiling is the vaporization of a liquid that occurs inside the liquid itself, whereas uh, evaporation only occurs on the surface of the liquid. So when a puddle dries up in the sun, that's evaporation. When you put a pot of water on the stove and you see bubbles coming up from it, that's boiling. So it's really just where the uh, vaporization is occurring. Is it inside, in which case, inside the liquid, in which case it's boiling? Is it on the surface only, in which case it's evaporation? Okay, so how does evaporation work? Evaporation will occur when a molecule on the surface of the liquid has sufficient kinetic energy, and also is traveling in the right direction, to escape the attractive forces of, of surrounding water molecules and therefore break free of the surface and, and become its own free particle, in which case it's entered the gaseous phase. Condensation is obviously the opposite of this. It's when that free molecule uh, hits the surface or sort of uh, moves in the direction of the surface and therefore and has low enough kinetic energy so that it's sort of captured by the attractive forces of the, the other liquid molecules and therefore joins the, the liquid and, and uh, enters that phase. So it's really all about what the kinetic energy of a given molecule is. If it's high enough, it'll escape the attractive forces of the liquid. If it's not high enough, it will rejoin uh, the rest of the the rest of the water molecules in that liquid in the body of liquid. Now, as we talked about in a thermodynamics le uh, episode, the kinetic energy of a molecule is directly proportional to its temperature. So, if we're saying that the evaporation or condensation of a liquid depends upon its kinetic energy, we're saying it depends upon its temperature, which of course meshes with common experience about the fact that you know things tend to evaporate or boil when you increase the temperature, or melt for that matter if they're originally solid. One interesting thing about this process is that if you continually remove the fastest moving molecules from a substance, what you'll tend to do is you're sort of selectively removing the, the hottest or the highest temperature molecules, and therefore the average temperature of, of the molecules that are left diminishes. So that's why evaporation tends to actually reduce the temperature of the uh, liquid that is evaporating, certainly reduce it um, lower than it would otherwise have been. This, this phenomenon is recalled to evaporative cooling, and it's essentially the reason why humans sweat, because as the sweat evaporates off the skin, it reduces the temperature of, of the skin. Now, because evaporation only occurs at the edge or surface of a, a body of liquid, the rate of, evaporation, the rate of evaporation increases with surface area. So a shallow uh, pond or pool puddle will evaporate much faster than a deeper one. Uh, of the same volume because there's more surface area for that to occur and therefore that, that essentially means more ability for the atoms to break free and leave the surface of the liquid and become into the gaseous phase or vice versa it's condensing more ability for molecules to uh, be trapped and, and captured by the other water molecules now 
this process of vaporization and also of condensation constantly occur at the same time even in, if it's really cold or really hot and you say that the particles are evaporating. Actually, it's mostly evaporating, but there is still condensation going on as well. There are still some water molecules just above the surface of the pond that are, that are being trapped, that have low enough kinetic energy that they're being trapped by the other water molecules and therefore re-entering the liquid phase. However, if it is the case that you know the, the puddle is in direct sunlight and it's relatively warm, then the rate of evaporation will greatly exceed um, the rate of recondensation, in which case the puddle will... If, potentially completely evaporate away. However, what you can occur, uh, what can occur is you reach what's called an evaporative equilibrium, uh, which basically means that the rate of evaporation is exactly offset by the rate of, or exactly the same as the rate of condensation, and so the two processes exactly cancel each other out, and so you reach a dynamic equilibrium, where there's evaporation and condensation constantly occurring, but no overall change in the amount of liquid or gas substance. This dynamic equilibrium essentially arises because as the amount of water that has evaporated, for example, from the, the puddle increases, if you have an enclosed, if the entire system is enclosed, then the amount of water that is, water vapor that is dissolved in the air increases. And therefore, it becomes more likely that some of those water molecules will be, uh, become trapped by the water surface again and, and, and re-enter the liquid phase. And so the rate of condensation increases. And that process will continue to occur until the rate of condensation equals or equals out with the rate of with the rate of evaporation that process can be circumvented obviously if say the puddle or whatever is evaporating is not in a closed system and for example you've got a, a source of wind to blow the air away so that the already evaporated water molecules are, are moved on and so then there's no or very few water molecules able to re-enter the the puddle or the liquid and then so if that continues to occur eventually all of the water molecules evaporate um, and this is why, for example, that uh, wind helps things to dry more quickly because they remove the water molecules that have already um, become vaporized, uh, leaving uh, more room in the air to dissolve further uh, amounts of uh, vapor or liquid, and also reducing the rate of return, the rate of recondensation of, ex of previously evaporated water molecules back into the liquid. Okay, so that's the process of evaporation and condensation. Now I'm going to move on to talk about boiling, which, remember, is when you have vaporization that occurs throughout the internal uh, body of liquid. In a liquid, just as molecules are constantly um, leaving the surface and then returning uh, into the, the body of water just because of thermal energy, uh, it's also the case that random collisions of water molecules within the liquid um, are constantly forming sort of little gas bubbles. You know, all it would take is uh, a couple of water molecules to randomly hit each other in such a way that there's a sort of a, a small opening or a small um, hole, or I guess it's a bubble, inside uh, inside that liquid, if it, even if it's only a few molecules across. And then you get one other water molecule that sort of randomly flies in there. It, it's uh, immediate environment, if you like, having been cleared out by uh, random collisions of other water molecules. And so you, you've essentially got one water molecule which is sort of by itself not directly bound and no hydrogen bonds to any surrounding water molecules. And that's essentially a tiny uh, little little pocket of gas there. And um, now, th these sorts of bubbles are constantly being formed, but of course, you know, a bubble that's small and, and randomly occurring will most likely just, within the next fraction of a second, uh, collapse because random motion could have caused it, but then at the next fraction of a second, the uh, more water molecules move in, and they form new hydrogen bonds, and the bubble is gone. In order for boiling to occur, what you need is for that, those bubbles to last long enough 
uh, in order to rise to the surface of the liquid through buoyant force, because essentially the bubble will be less dense than the liquid water that surrounds it, so they will tend to rise through essentially natural buoyancy, uh, the force of gravity. But in order to reach the surface, they need to last long enough. So boiling a water is not so much about forming those bubbles as permitting those bubbles to last long enough in order to uh, reach the surface, therefore sort of expelling the, 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 little, the small amount of gas that... Uh, has been accumulated in that bubble and then allowing the process to continue. So how do we increase the time that these uh, water bubbles last for? The answer is, as you might expect, that we need to increase the temperature of the of the water uh, to a sufficient level. And w once we get to that crucial temperature, which is called the boiling point, uh, the average water molecule will have enough kinetic energy so that, in a sense, it's able to maintain that it's able to exert enough pressure on the sides of the, the micro-bubbles that form to maintain the bubble. Uh, beca because the bubble will be maintained, uh, the bubble micro-bubbles that form like that in the liquid will tend to collapse as a result of the inward pressure of the water surrounding them, but they will be able to be maintained as long as the water uh, molecules or the, yeah, the water molecules that are in the bubble um, are bouncing around energetically enough to offset that pressure. So that the pressure pushing out from the bubble is the same as the pressure pushing in. The bubble will, st will be stable. If the pressure pushing out is greater than the force pushing in, by the way, the pressure pushing in, then the bubble will actually grow in size. And more, uh, and therefore you've got more water in the gaseous state. Um, as long as the bubbles are stable, and therefore the outward is at least the same as the inward force, then uh, the bubbles will... Well, will be stable, and therefore will have sufficient time to rise through the buoyant force up to the surface of the liquid, discharging their contents and thereby boiling away part of the liquid. And then this process continues, potentially until all of the liquid has been boiled away. Now this uh, phenomenon allows us to explain why it is that pressure cookers are able to cook so much faster. The reason is that putting water under pressure increases the boiling point. So that means that the Water, when, it, when water is placed under pressure, say in a pressure cooker, you have to heat that body of water now to a high temperature in order to get it to boil than you did before. The reason is because essentially there's more pressure on the water, so the inward pushing force that tends to eliminate bubbles is greater, and so we need a correspondingly larger outward uh, pressure force from, with, from the water molecules within the bubble in order to offset that. And in order to get that, we, we need the kinetic energy of the water molecules in the, in, inside the bubbles to be larger, which in turn implies a higher temperature. So a, a higher pressure of the, uh, of the water when, when being boiled implies a higher boiling point. But when you have a higher temperature of the water, that also means that you're going to cook whatever vegetables or other materials are in that water more quickly, because that depends upon the temperature. Remember that I talked about in a previous episode that once you start having a phase transition, like once you start boiling the water, the temperature, additional energy no longer goes into increasing the temperature of the water. The additional energy goes into breaking the hydrogen bonds between the water molecules. So if you continue to heat a, or turn, even turn up the heat, on a, uh, a boiling pot of water, for example, that would tend to increase the rate at which water is boiling, but it will not increase the temperature of the water at all. And because the rate of cooking depends upon the temperature of the water and not how quickly it's boiling, uh, the only way to increase the rate of cooking once you're already boiling the water is to put the water under pressure, thereby actually increasing the boiling point and therefore increasing that temperature that you're able to maintain as the water's boiling. Okay, so now that we've covered uh, boiling, I'm going to talk about melting and freezing. Freezing is also called solidification, is a phase change in which a liquid turns into a solid uh, when its temperature is lowered below the, the substance's freezing point. Most liquids freeze by a process called crystallization, which is basically the formation of a crystalline solid uh, from the liquid. 
a crystalline solid is basically a solid that has a an orderly crystal structure so that the molecules are arranged or ions or whatever they are, are arranged in some sort of neat orderly pattern and this crystallization process occurs in sort of two stages the first is the process of nucleation and then the second is the process of sort of uh, expansion or growth of, of, the, of the crystal structure nucleation essentially refers to the formation of sort of little nuclei or small sort of accumulations of particles which join together in a which uh, join together in a more rigid way consistent with a solid material so, so that small nucleation side, that, that small site with the first initial sort of solid type bonds, intermolecular bonds that have been formed, forms the basis upon which the, the growing solid crystal structure then expands. So, so once you've got that nucleation site, it's relatively easy for then additional previously liquid molecules, um, as long as they have, uh, as long as they are, don't have too much kinetic energy, um, it's relatively easy for them to sort of get stuck and, and, and uh, join that, that growing lattice structure, the growing crystal lattice structure. Once again, this will all be dependent upon the kinetic energy and therefore the temperature of the molecules because the higher the kinetic energy, the temperature is, the, the more likely that the molecules will break away, will, will break off from the surface of, of this crystal structure and, and rejoin the liquid. But if their kinetic energy is small enough, they'll be sort of attracted by or, or constrained by the growing crystalline, uh, crystalline structure and therefore the, they'll remain in the solid state or enter the solid state. Once again, the rate of... Um, the rate of freezing will depend upon the surface area available, so that's that's why nucleation sites are particularly important. So often, if you have a small impurities in a substance, or you you put it in a container with a large surface area of sides, it will freeze more rapidly because it has those nucleation sites to to begin building the crystal on. The, the hardest part, in a sense, of um, of freezing is, is is forming those initial nucleation sites. Um, so so the higher the surface area you have for those to form, the the faster it will freeze. And, and on a related note substances that are referred to as antifreeze, or at least one mechanism by which they work, is essentially just disrupting the, the, the formation of, of, disrupting the formation of regular uh, lattice structures or disrupting the crystallization process. So, for example, if you put salt in water, that uh, reduces the freezing point below zero, meaning that you now have to cool the water even more, reduce the kinetic energy of the water molecules even more in order to freeze it. Because the lattice structure is, it has been disrupted by the presence of those of those salt ions. The salt ions make it that much more difficult for water molecules to be attracted to the, the nucleation sites, to the growing crystal and lattice structure, and so they need to lose even the water molecules need to lose even more kinetic energy before they're going to do that. Therefore, you need to cool the substance down even further. So, in in a sense, the, uh, the these antifreeze, or in this case, the the salt ions, are just getting in the way of lattice formation, thereby depressing the uh, the freezing point. Melting is pretty much the exact opposite of everything I've just said. So instead of um, the water molecules or the liquid molecules losing kinetic energy and joining lattice structure, it's they gain kinetic energy and pull away from the lattice structure, and therefore the lattice structure deforms and melts. Okay, uh, finally, I just want to very briefly talk about sublimation, uh, which is a bit less uh, well-known than the evaporation and melting and so on. Sublimation is the process by which uh, a substance is, goes directly from being a solid to a gas, so it does not pass through the liquid stage. So, uh, some substances sublime, uh, for example, dry ice or carbon carbon solid carbon dioxide, it, it sublimes quite readily at, at atmospheric temperature and pressures. So if you've ever seen blocks of dry ice, for example, they uh, at least used to, I don't know if they still do, but at least used to use these on stage uh, to, to generate smoke. Uh, because dry ice, if it's placed in well, just room temperature conditions, will, will give off this sort of, uh, give off this, vague mist or smoke, what, what sort of looks like smoke. Mist is probably a better word to describe it. Um, that is carbon dioxide gas, which is subliming, going directly from being in the solid frozen stage to, to the gas stage uh, as a result of the increase in temperature. 
Regular snow and ice actually do sublime as well when the temperature is below their melting point, but they're exposed to, for example, sun. So the uh, essentially the the, the uh, kinetic energy of the surface molecules is being increased so much that they break away from the solid lattice structure completely and just become gas molecules. But the overall temperature of the water of the water or liquid molecules that remain, uh, excuse me, not the liquid, the, the solid molecules that remain is sufficient to keep them in the lattice structure. So the whole thing doesn't melt, but you do sort of gradually pull off or remove uh, layers of the, the outermost molecules that are attached to the solid lattice. Freezer burn is an application of sublimation. Freezer burn is essentially damage or sort of oxidation marks to, to meat that uh to frozen meat that occurs when the meat is exposed to the air or improperly packaged. Uh, it doesn't really, it doesn't make the food inedible. It, tend to make it less tasty, um, reason being that if the frozen meat is exposed to the air, um, some of that ice, or some of the frozen ice even within the meat will, uh, will sublime, so it will turn into a gas, thereby depriving that portion of the meat of moisture, because the water's gone, and making it become dry and shriveled and sort of look burned or blackish and therefore not be particularly appetizing. So that's why it's important to pack uh, meats and other things uh, that are going to be frozen properly so that they're not exposed to the air and therefore do not suffer this, this freezer burn. It's not really anything like a burn, by the way. It's just a word that's used because the, the surface manifestation kind of looks like a burn, but the process is really quite different. The, the opposite of sublimation, by the way, is called deposition, which is which will be a gas going directly to the, to the solid stage, and it has essentially a similar mechanism. Okay, so that's all the phase transitions that I want to cover, and that's the end of the episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you want to send me an email with any advice or questions or whatever, uh, my address is fods12 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs> <laughs>